Snap Studios. It's an alchemy. All its own. First the kindling. You place the dry pieces of wood at the bottom. The twigs set up like a pyramid. Then the spark. Careful. Careful. Blow just a little. Watch it lick the wood. Hesitant at first. Then hungry. Angry. Dancing between there and not there. Yellow, red, orange. The oldest magic there is. Fire. And if you stare at this flame, at this dance, at dusk, from the corners of your eye, you will see the shadows bend. Don't look. Don't look now. Look at the fire. Let the faces come of their own bidding. Be still. Else they flee like cats. Look to the fire. The flame, the burn, and know this. Last year, we brought you a special podcast. We called it Spooked. Amazing stories from the inexplicable. So this year... Snap's coming at you with a second season of Spook. 13 all-new episodes dropping later in August. Be afraid. It's a journey through the dark side like nothing you've ever experienced. But before we go there, I want you to hear a little something from Spook Season 1. Snappers, it's time for Campfire Tales. My name is Glenn Washington. Stay close to the flame because you're listening. The snap judgment. Imagine. It's the middle of the night. You're not even 15 years old. You're home alone with your little brother. Waiting for your mom to come home. Waiting and waiting to hear her car pull into the driveway. And you're wondering, what if she doesn't make it? She had a night shift job in Salt Lake, which was about 70 miles south of where we lived, soldering um, electrical components. I, um, I think she was actually working on missiles. I think she was, uh, Sperry Rand was, uh, had a um, defense contract from the, from the federal government. So when mom went back to work, my older brother Kent had been babysitting us, but he had been drafted and was in Vietnam at the time. So uh, after he left and went into the service, it was pretty much just Rod and I, and my younger brother Rod. And I was mostly in charge at that time. So um, yeah, when I got off the bus every day, there was nobody there. We're responsible for making dinner, cleaning up, taking care of ourselves, getting ourselves to bed, and um, usually up again the next morning because mother would come home and she'd be sleeping. So. Um, yeah, that was that was the way it was. Remember, this is uh, the '50s and a Mormon community. Uh, nobody, <laughs> nobody that I knew of was was getting divorced at the time, and it did. It made me different because I was the one that was coming home uh, uh, to a house without a mother in it. So one night I'm sleeping and I'm suddenly awakened. And I sit up in my bed, and I look around the room, and I try and figure out what it was that woke me up. And I'm thinking it was some kind of sound. And for some reason, 
my attention uh, goes to my bedroom closet where I can see that my old tap shoe box has fallen from the shelf above uh, the hangers. And I thought that was quite strange, but nonetheless, I went over and I picked the box up and, and put the black patent leather shoes back into it, put the lid back onto it. And then, of course, I went back and got into bed. But I couldn't lay down. I just really just sat there under the covers waiting because I was feeling like I was supposed to be up for some reason. And I knew something was going to happen. I can't explain it except that I felt like I was waiting on something bad. And I would have gone and told Mom if she'd been there, but of course she was at work. And so I was in charge, and I was very well aware that whatever was going to occur was going to be in my lap. And then I heard the thud. And then I heard another thud and another thud. I knew they were coming from my left side as I was positioned in my bed looking out my window. And that would have meant that they would have had to have been coming either from our garage or the ward's place on the, uh, on the other side of it. The ward's place was right next door to us. Thud, thud, like that. I remember hearing that sound, you know, as it diffused out over our orchards to the west. Then I heard another one. And then I thought, well, I better get up and check the rest of the house out because I'm in charge now. I felt a real deep concern. So I go and I check out the locks on both the front and back doors at first. Then I go into the kitchen and I turn on the light above the sink. So I'm standing at our porcelain sink and it has uh, windows all the way around it. I just stood there for a while and just like anchored almost. Uh, as if I was supposed to just be in that spot. It did seem at that point that something bad had taken hold of the night. My first fear was for my mother. She had to drive that 70-mile drive, you know, all the way home uh, in the dark, and she was always complaining about how tired out her eyes were after staring eight hours into a magnifying glass. How, you know, how tough it was uh, to keep from falling asleep on that drive home. And I told God, would he please protect her and our black Chevy? Protect me from becoming an orphan. It was more just sort of maybe a dread. My, uh, my breathing alters a little bit. I prayed off the dread of a call from the police. Right then, sirens, sirens come screaming down Highway 89 and four um, patrol cars screech to a halt in the ward's driveway next door. And well, all I can think about is Donnie, the one with the wild reputation, but I can't understand why it would take so many cops to arrest one guy. Uh, the policeman gets out, they hide behind the doors of their cars. The sheriff gets out the megaphone. Uh, it was just like in the movies. And he started, he, he, he first called for Mr. Ward to come out of the house. And then he called for Mrs. Ward. And then he called for Donnie. But nobody came out. What I saw was a policeman. I saw him come out of the house and he was headed in our direction. 
And this really worried me. I, I remember watching him walk over their lawn, crossed our double driveway, and then he selected the cement path that led to our front door. I went and turned on the porch light, I turned on the foyer light, and I opened the door, and there were two people standing there. Uh, it was him and a woman. Now, I assumed she was a plain-clothed uh, policewoman because she wasn't in uniform, but nonetheless, she was with him. I told them my mom wasn't at home, you know, hoping that that'd make him go away. Uh, but he said no, he still wanted to come in, and I let him because he was holding a baby. He came into the foyer and she followed him in and then left us. And I had the notion she had just gone into our kitchen. But anyway, I didn't have too much time to process it because the policeman was trying to inform me what had occurred next door. Some people had been shot. One of them was this baby's mother. Uh, she was dead, and so was the baby's father. The kid was about three months old, and I could see blood on her pajamas. Uh, he said they were waiting for the relatives, to, some relatives to come and get her, but they were coming from a ways away. It would take them a while. Uh, they happened to be short on personnel. They needed everybody over at the ward's house. Uh, so they didn't really have anyone to watch the child. He said he'd seen the kitchen light on. He'd seen me standing in front of the kitchen sink, and he wondered if I would take her in. I don't even remember <laughs> saying yes before he ditched her with me and gave me her bottle, and I noticed it was only half full and wondering what I was going to do if they didn't get there in time. I was wondering if the kid came with diapers. I was thinking I might have to go swipe one off one of my old baby dolls. And that caused me to think about this woman that had gone into the kitchen. I, I had never seen her leave. When I walked into the kitchen, I did see her, but I could see through her. <laughs> and that's when, and that's when I understood uh, the woman wasn't with the cop. She was with the baby. She's very, very shook up. And she is standing in the corner. She was apologizing. That was the first thing. She was apologizing for being there. But she also told me that she was going to be there for a brief time. Uh, this was the baby's mother. My curiosity more or less kicks in at that point, And I don't really feel a sense of fear. So then I told her that I knew she was there and that it was okay. And after that, she seemed to relax a little bit. Uh, she relaxed, actually, a lot, because it wasn't because I gave her permission to be there. It was because we could communicate. And that seemed to be of tremendous relief to her. So after establishing the identity, I got all practical. Um, I realized I wasn't going to be able to hold that baby all night that I was gonna to have to go make it a bed. She follows in, us into the living room, then she walked right across that living room to the opposite side and stood in front of those plate glass windows. And I remember looking out those windows and seeing those stars shining over those huge uh, rocky mountains. And she would stand there the rest of the night. She was focused on me and the baby and 
There didn't seem like a lot of time to be fearful because um, I felt that she was there for a reason. I don't know, I think I com uh, she was communicating her thoughts uh, to me because I felt a lot of emotion and um, I felt her concern about what had just happened. And I knew she was troubled because she didn't know who I was or if she could trust me with her child. And I wanted to alleviate her concern, so I told her, hey, don't worry. I babysit all my ne nephews and nieces, and I've got 11 of them. And then I told her how sorry I was that she had just died. Uh, maybe it was my own fears that were feeding into things. I mean, I had just prayed off not becoming an orphan myself, and there I am holding one. Um, but I suddenly felt the pain of a mother and a child divided. I was um, sad. <laughs> I was very, very sad. Um, then I felt her disappointment. And then I felt her hope. She really hoped that her child would be able to hear the story and not let it ruin the rest of her life. Our relationship was um, quite practical, it seems. But most of the time, yeah, I held her really close um, next to my chest. I was quite protective of her. Just rocked her, uh, kept her safe. It was really important for me um, that she felt safe because she kind of wasn't. The baby was really quite a good baby. Um, I only remember her waking up once and crying, and then she slept the rest of the time. So, you know, I've often wondered if her mother's presence, if the, if the child felt her mother's presence. And I think that was the whole point of her being there. She was sticking around until she was sure that, that the baby was in the right hands. Well, I remember when mom got home and pulled into the driveway I was at the you know I was at the door waiting to tell her what had happened um, and uh, it was probably about an hour or 45 minutes after she arrived home that they the relatives came and picked her up um, they were very kind to me and, and like I say very appreciative there wasn't a big transaction we we gave them the baby and it seemed like they were off um, as soon as the relatives had departed and the baby was, was gone, so was she. So I'm sure that she went with the child. And by then we had learned what had happened. Uh, this young woman had been having an affair with Donnie and uh, she had just asked her husband uh, for a divorce so that she and Donnie could carry you know, forth their, for their lives together. And uh, her husband was a Brigham City policeman. And after his shift, he had gotten drunk and then drove down to our little town to settle the score. He uh, shot Donnie, and then he shot uh, the mother. And she was holding the baby. Uh, they were standing in the kitchen, and she was holding the baby at the time, and the baby fell with her to the floor, which, of course, explained the blood on the pajamas. And then the shooter turned the gun on himself. So the thuds that echoed over our peaceful orchards 
had been bullets. This sort of thing just didn't happen in our part of town, and it had given me some celebrity to have, have it happen right next door. So the next day, when I returned to school, I was the center of attention because everybody wanted to hear this story. You know, it had made the uh, Box Elder Journal by then. So, and I told them about the policeman. I told them about the gunshots and the baby, but I left out the ghost. Why didn't you want to tell them? At 12, you crave ordinary. <laughs> I didn't want to be seen as unusual or different. And the other part of that is, this was uh, a private, a very powerful experience that I was hesitant to share. It was mine. Thank you to Janet Larkin, for sharing your story at The Snap. Now, if you want to hear more of Janet's experiences, she's written them down in a book called Surrounded by Ghosts. Find out more at our website, snapjudgment.org. The original score was created by Renzo Gorio. The story was produced by Anna Sussman. In just a moment, what does the other side want? Find out when Campfire Tales continues... Stay tuned. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today. Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates, national average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies. Millie Vanilli, Set the World on Fire, but... When their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip-syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Farian and Ingrid Segeev, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young black artists. Binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. Welcome back to Snap Judgment, Campfire Tales. Now, anyone who watches movies knows that the dead only return if they have unfinished business. If you see someone, well, that's a bad sign, Jack. You're supposed to run away screaming. At least, that's what I would do. But fortunately, the folk in our next story, well, they're a better class of people. Snap Judgment. Spencer, and I'm the Dean of the School of Arts and Humanities at the University of Arkansas in Monticello. When Mark and his wife Rebecca first moved to the small town of Monticello, they instantly fell in love. 
we saw a somewhat dilapidated but fascinating and beautiful old Victorian mansion with turrets and spires and a huge portico. There was almost a beautiful ruin. They knew they had to have that house. A month later, Mark finally got a call from the homeowner, who agreed to give them a tour of the inside. But the evening before, Mark and his wife decided to drive by the house. Their three kids were with them. We stopped in the street to sit and, and, and gaze at it, as we often did. The older boy said, who's that lady in the window? And he pointed over to um, the second story south turret window. I saw a lady sitting there in the window. It looked like she was sitting at maybe a small table or desk, reading a book or writing a letter. And my wife said, oh, that must be the owner. We drive away. The next evening, my wife and I go to the house, um, and we get to meet the owner. A very, very charming older lady. And she showed us around the house. And then she took us upstairs to the second floor, and she opened the door to the master bedroom. And the master bedroom was full of boxes and furniture, and we couldn't even get into the room. And I realized that this was the room with the window in which we had seen the woman the night before. And I said to the owner, oh, but we, we saw you in the window last night. And she said, oh, no, as you can see, you can't even get to the window. And I haven't been in this room in months. Uh, and my wife even said something about, well, no, we all saw you. <laughs> and that's when the owner said, have people in town been telling you that the house is haunted? And I said, yeah, I've heard those stories, you know, and I'm not taken in by such silliness. And she said, well, it is. You know, so many people had told us so many stories about the ghost in the house. They said the house was haunted by a ghost named Liddell Allen, a woman who in real life killed herself in the master bedroom back in 1948. The big question, the mystery, was why did she do it? Nobody knew. At the time of her her suicide, everybody was shocked and nobody understood it. It was a mystery from the start. And over the years, it remained a mystery. My wife and I just liked the house because it was unique and beautiful. And we thought it would be fantastic to fix it up and live there. And to Mark's surprise, the woman told them the house was theirs. She also said that she had this strange feeling that we were meant to have the house. The day that we moved into the house, uh, I was carrying boxes. And my little boy, who was five at the time, was standing there by the side staircase. And I remember being struck that he was standing very still and he looked kind of pale. and And I thought that maybe he wasn't feeling well. I say over my shoulder, well, how do you like your new house? And he doesn't answer me. And and I say, well, well, do you? You like your new house? And he doesn't say anything. And then once I get the boxes situated, I, I turn and he's not there. He was just gone. A little while later, I found him upstairs in his room watching a Star Wars movie. And I, and I said, well, why didn't he say anything earlier when I asked you how you liked the house? And he said, what are you talking about, Dad? So I haven't been downstairs since we had lunch. That was like hours ago. Didn't give it a whole lot of thought. 
But then there were related incidents um, within the next couple of days. Like the time Jacob, the youngest boy, got mad at his older brother Joshua for coming into his room and whispering his name in his ear over and over again. Jacob, Jacob, Jacob. When Mark confronted Joshua, he said, Dad, I have no idea what you're talking about. It's like, okay, what's going on? This is really weird. And I'm thinking, okay, well, we're exhausted from moving or something. But as Mark and his family settled in those first few weeks, the house's notorious reputation was impossible to ignore. We were bombarded with requests from paranormal investigators. And we said no. We said, no, we don't want to get involved in that. So I'm, I'm not, you know, really taking any of this very seriously. However, one afternoon I was um, in the attic, and I was actually hanging out the attic window painting. I was perched on the ledge outside the window, risking my life in the name of historical and architectural preservation. I finally got to the point where I felt like I had done enough for the, for the day, and I pulled myself into the attic, and I turned And I noticed that my shadow was cast all the way across the attic to the opposite corner. And I thought, well, that's interesting. You know, I can see my my shadow all the way over there in the south turret room. I was in the north end of, of the attic. It just seemed odd that my shadow would be cast in that manner. And then I moved, but my shadow didn't move. So when Mark got contacted again by a group of ghost hunters from Louisiana, he could no longer resist. And these ghost hunters seem different. They seem like reasonable people. They, you know, they don't use psychics. They try to debunk things. They try to come up with explanations for what people interpret as paranormal activity. So the ghost hunters came. They set up recording equipment throughout the 6,500-square-foot house to see if they could capture any paranormal sounds. And after a long, uneventful night, they took off the following morning. They came back a few weeks later for their reveal. And the lead investigator sat with me and my wife at our dining room table, and he said, Mark, do you want to ask me the question that homeowners always want to ask? And I said, well, yeah, what, what is that? And he said, well, they always want to ask, is my house haunted? And I said, okay, is my house haunted? And he said, yes, definitely. The investigator said his team had gathered over 40 audio recordings of sounds that they identified as paranormal, what they call electronic voice phenomenon, or EVPs. Then the investigator proceeded to play them for Mark from his laptop. You hear, it's a woman's voice. And she says... I just lied. And and then immediately after that she says it was justified. It was justified. And and I'm sitting there thinking, well this is really creepy. Who are these these voices? And the lead investigator said, Well, that's not one of the investigators. Well, I had chills run down my spine. The investigators said that most of the recordings picked up the voice of a woman. Mark immediately thought of Liddell Allen, the woman who killed herself in the house all those years ago. And so, not long after that reveal session, 
I took a, a $10 digital audio recorder, battery operated, up to the attic one evening by myself. I decided I was going to have my own EVP session. And I'm sitting on an old couch up there, and I asked Liddell, why are you here? Probably not more than 10 minutes go by, and I'm already starting to get bored. And so I, I play back what I've recorded, and I hear my voice, of course. And then I hear very distinctly a woman's voice. And she says, I like, I like it, here. it here. And the voice, it, it was like she was sitting next to me on that old couch. That was the evening when I realized for certain that we weren't alone. Because I knew I hadn't faked that EVP. I, I couldn't explain that. Okay, there's a ghost in my house, and she just talked to me. Saturday morning in August of 2009, I wake up, and I immediately felt a compulsion to go to the attic. It's like a voice in my head telling me to go to the attic, that if I did, I was going to, to find something. And I didn't really understand why I felt that compulsion. And we'd been in the house for over two years, and I was pretty certain that I had found everything there was to find in the attic. But I found myself going up the attic stairs. I walked straight over to the edge of the South Turret room, and I stood looking down at a small opening in the floor. It's a couple inches wide, two or three inches long. I just stood there looking down at it, and, and, and it was like that voice in my head telling me again, um, look more closely. And so I got down on my knees, and, and I peered into this opening in the floor. And then I got a glimpse of a brown piece of paper. And so I reached into the opening, got a couple of fingers on the edge of this brown piece of paper, and pulled it out. To my surprise, it was an envelope. And I lifted up the flap, and inside were smaller envelopes. They were white. They were all postmarked 1948, and they were addressed to Liddell Allen Bonner. And I opened up... um, the flap of one of the white envelopes and pulled out a a letter and the salutation was dearest and it was signed love and then under the word love was the initial P. And I realized that I had found a batch of love letters written to Liddell a couple of months before her suicide. I jumped up and I ran downstairs and got a claw hammer, ran back upstairs and I pried up the, the floorboard. And underneath the floorboard were more letters. In total, about 80 letters. Most of them from a man named Prentice Hemingway Savage. Mark sat down on the attic floor and laid the letters out in chronological order. With the sun shining bright through the attic window, he began to read. Prentice, he was a wealthy, successful businessman. He writes in, in his letters how much he, he loves her petiteness and, and how he can't keep his hands off of her. And enough, nothing terribly explicit, but enough to make it clear that he's eager for the next meeting. Prentice writes, 
If you should show up around any part of the country north of the Mason and Dixon line, I'll find some reason to be there too. There was just that problem of him being married. But Prentice was successful in convincing Liddell that their corresponding was okay, that their meeting somewhere was, was okay. Although from what Mark could tell, Liddell knew better. She was pretty paranoid. Now, she kept all of his letters, obviously, and she kept the letters of her friends in whom she confided about the affair. In one letter, Prentice responds, What will I do with you if you don't quit worrying about your letters? So just dismiss that from your sweet little mind, my dear. But she made Prentice promise to destroy her letters to him. In fact, he had to tear them up, and then send the fragments back to her in his envelopes when he replied. And that's why in some of the envelopes, there are these scraps of letters stuck in the corners of the insides of the envelopes that are scraps of letters that Liddell wrote to him. Prentice and Liddell get deeper and deeper into this torrid love affair. They find a way to meet in Wisconsin and then Minnesota, where they spend two blissful weeks together. Prentice writes, These last five days will live in my memory always, as the happiest ones in my entire life. I love you. Don't ever forget I'm thinking of you always. And I'm there on my knees or on the attic floor holding this letter. You know, it's really hot and I'm sweating. <laughs> no, it, it seemed unreal. I'm immersed in the time of those individuals. March and April and May of 1948. And the letters are, are elaborate, they're vivid, they're full of expressions of, of affection and of growing affection. And it's not long before Prentice starts talking about leaving his wife. He writes, I know now more than ever that you and I should work out the details we talked over. I shall do my part soon. One of the things that they've been corresponding about for months is how he's going to be in Monticello for the holidays. By Christmas, everything's going to be settled. He and Liddell will spend Christmas together. But then there's a decidedly negative turn. In early December, he writes her a letter and he complains about going to the dentist, and, and he complains about being really busy. And then he says, I can't leave my wife after all. I just don't see it happening, at least not anytime soon. And he says in the letter he doesn't know when he'll be able to write her again. Prentice signs off. Take good care of yourself, dear. I'm thinking, oh, I knew how the story was going to end. Liddell would never receive another letter from Prentice. So it was December 25th evening. Liddell attended her, her mother's Christmas party. She mingled with the guest. I think she was holding out some hope that Prentice would show up on Christmas, that he would surprise her. And late in the evening, when he had not shown up, she prepared herself a plate of hors d'oeuvres and a glass of punch, and she went up to the master bedroom, which was her room. And she used the, the punch and the hors d'oeuvres to mask the taste of mercury cyanide tablets. 
I'd been in the attic for several hours at that point. I looked up at the rafters and, and said, I'm so sorry, Liddell. People often ask whether she's still there, and she is. One day, this was in April of 2014, I was um, walking into the master bedroom. I saw my wife on the other side of the room um, in front of one of the turret windows, and her back was to me. What struck me as odd was that she's looking out the window, but she didn't have the curtain pulled back. I'm about to ask her what she's doing, and I literally had my mouth open to speak to her when she vanished. She just completely disappeared right in front of my eyes. Big thanks to Mark Spencer for having the courage to dig up those letters. And we want to send our love and gratitude to Liddell for helping Mark find them. You can find out more information about Mark and Liddell's house on our website, snapjudgment.org. Leon Morimoto rocked that original score. It was produced by Nancy Lopez. Now we're out now, right now in dark closets hidden catacombs, getting ready for an all-new season of Spooked. 13 amazing episodes of Snap Judgment Presents Spooked. It drops this August. Be afraid. But Glenn, people ask me, how do I know if I'm being contacted from the other side? Well, I've got your answer in just a moment, Snappers. When Campfire Tales continues, stay tuned. It's an alchemy, all its own. First, the kindling. You place the dry pieces of wood at the bottom. The twigs set up like a pyramid. Then the spark. Careful, careful, blow just a little. Watch it lick the wood. Hesitant at first, then hungry, angry. Dancing between there and not there, yellow, red, orange. The oldest magic there is fire. And if you stare at this flame, at this dance, at dusk, from the corners of your eye, you will see the shadows bend. Don't look. Don't look now. Look at the fire. Let the faces come of their own bidding. Be still. Else they flee like cats. Look to the fire flame, the burn, and know this. Last year, we brought you a special podcast. We called it Spooked, Amazing Stories from the Inexplicable. So this year, Snap's coming at you with a second season of Spooked, 13 all-new episodes dropping later in August. Be afraid. It's a journey through the dark side like nothing you've ever experienced. But before we go there, I want you to hear a little something from Spooked Season 1. Snappers, it's time for Campfire Tales. My name is Ben Washington. Stay close to the flame because you're listening to Snap Judgment. Imagine, it's the middle of the night. You're not even 15 years old. You're home alone with your little brother, waiting for your mom to come home. 
waiting and waiting to hear her car pull into the driveway. And you're wondering, what if she doesn't make it? She had a night shift job in Salt Lake, which was about 70 miles south of where we lived, soldering um, electrical components. I, um, I think she was actually working on missiles. I think she was, uh, Sperry Rand was, uh, had a um, defense contract from the, from the federal government. So when mom went back to work, my older brother Kent had been babysitting us, but he had been drafted and was in Vietnam at the time. So uh, after he left and went into the service, it was pretty much just Rod and I, and my younger brother Rod. And I was mostly in charge at that time. So um, yeah, when I got off the bus every day, there was nobody there. We're responsible for making dinner, cleaning up, taking care of ourselves, getting ourselves to bed, and um, usually up again the next morning because mother would come home and she'd be sleeping. So. Um, yeah, that was that was the way it was. Remember, this is uh, the 50s and a Mormon community. Uh, nobody, <laughs> nobody that I knew of was was getting divorced at the time. And it did. It made me different because I was the one that was coming home uh, uh, to a house without a mother in it. So one night I'm sleeping and I'm suddenly awakened. And I sit up in my bed, and I look around the room, and I try and figure out what it was that woke me up. And I'm thinking it was some kind of sound. And for some reason, my attention uh, goes to my bedroom closet, where I can see that my old tap shoe box has fallen from the shelf above the, uh, the hangers. And I thought that was quite strange. But nonetheless, I went over and I picked the box up, and and put the black patent leather shoes back into it, put the lid back onto it. And then, of course, I went back and got into bed. But I couldn't lay down. I just really just sat there under the covers waiting because I was feeling like I was supposed to be up for some reason. And I knew something was going to happen. I can't explain it except that I felt like I was waiting on something bad. And I would have gone and told Mom if she'd been there, but, of course, she was at work. And so I was in charge, and I was very well aware that whatever was going to occur was going to be in my lap. And then I heard this thud. And then I heard another thud and another thud. I knew they were coming from my left side as I was positioned in my bed looking out my window. And that would have meant that they would have had to have been coming either from our garage or the ward's place on the, uh, on the other side of it. The ward's place was right next door to us. Thud, thud, like that. I remember hearing that sound, you know, as it diffused out over our orchards to the west. Then I heard another one. And then I thought, well... <laughs> I better get up and check the rest of the house out because I'm in charge now. I felt a real deep concern. So I go and I check out the locks on both the front and back doors at first. Then I go into the kitchen and I turn on the light above the sink. 
So I'm standing at our porcelain sink and it has uh, windows all the way around it. I just stood there for a while and just like anchored almost, uh, as if I was supposed to just be in that spot. It did seem at that point that something bad had taken hold of the night. My first fear was for my mother. She had to drive that 70 mile drive, you know, all the way home uh, in the dark. And she was always complaining about how tired out her eyes were after staring eight hours into a magnifying glass. How, uh, you know, how tough it was uh, to keep from falling asleep on that drive home. And I told God, would he please protect her and our black Chevy? Protect me from becoming an orphan. It's more just sort of maybe a dread. My, uh, my breathing alters a little bit. I prayed off the dread of a call from the police. Right then, sirens. Sirens come screaming down Highway 89, and four um, patrol cars screech to a halt in the ward's driveway next door. And, well, all I can think about is Donnie, the one with the wild reputation. But I can't understand why it would take so many cops to arrest one guy. Uh, the policeman gets out, they hide behind the doors of their cars, the sheriff gets out the megaphone. Uh, it was just like in the movies. And he started, he, he, he first called for Mr. Ward to come out of the house. And then he called for Mrs. Ward. And then he called for Donnie. But nobody came out. What I saw was a policeman. I saw him come out of the house and he was headed in our direction. And this really worried me. I remember watching him walk over their lawn, crossed our double driveway, and then he selected the cement path that led to our front door. I went and turned on the porch light, I turned on the foyer light, and I opened the door, and there were two people standing there. Uh, it was him and a woman. Now, I assumed she was a plainclothes uh, policewoman because she wasn't in uniform, but nonetheless, she was with him. I told them my mom wasn't at home, you know, hoping that that'd make him go away. Uh, but he said no, he still wanted to come in, and I let him because he was holding a baby. He came into the foyer and she followed him in and then left us. And I had the notion she had just gone into our kitchen. But anyway, I didn't have too much time to process it because the policeman was trying to inform me what had occurred next door. Some people had been shot. One of them was this baby's mother. Uh, she was dead, and so was the baby's father. The kid was about three months old, and I could see blood on her pajamas. Uh, he said they were waiting for the relatives, to, some relatives to come and get her, but they were coming from a ways away. It would take them a while. Uh, they happened to be short on personnel. They needed everybody over at the ward's house. Um, so they didn't really have anyone to watch the child. He said he'd seen the kitchen light on. He'd seen me standing in front of the kitchen sink, and he wondered if I would take her in. I don't even remember <laughs> saying yes before he ditched her with me and gave me her bottle, and I noticed it was only half full and wondering what I was gonna do if they didn't get there in time. I was wondering if the kid came with diapers 
I was thinking I might have to go swipe one off one of my old baby dolls. And that caused me to think about this woman that had gone into the kitchen. I, I had never seen her leave. When I walked into the kitchen, I did see her, but I could see through her. <laughs> and that's when, and that's when I understood uh, the woman wasn't with the cop. She was with the baby. She's very, very shook up. And she is standing in the corner. She was apologizing. That was the first thing. She was apologizing for being there. But she also told me that she was going to be there for a brief time. Uh, this was the baby's mother. My curiosity more or less kicks in at that point, and I don't really feel a sense of fear. So then I told her that I knew she was there and that it was okay. And after that, she seemed to relax a little bit. Uh, she relaxed, actually, a lot, because it wasn't because I gave her permission to be there. It was because we could communicate. And that seemed to be of tremendous relief to her. So after establishing the identity, I got all practical. Um, I realized I wasn't going to be able to hold that baby all night, that I was going to have to go make it a bed. She follows in, us into the living room, and she walked right across that living room to the opposite side and stood in front of those plate glass windows. And I remember looking out those windows and seeing those stars shining over those huge uh, rocky mountains, and she would stand there the rest of the night. She was focused on me and the baby, and there didn't seem like a lot of time to be fearful because um, I felt that she was there for a reason. I don't know, I think I com uh, she was communicating her thoughts uh, to me because I felt a lot of emotion, and um, I felt her concern about what had just happened. And I knew she was troubled because she didn't know who I was or if she could trust me with her child. And I wanted to alleviate her concern, so I told her, hey, don't worry. I babysit all my ne nephews and nieces, and I've got 11 of them. And then I told her how sorry I was that she had just died. Uh, maybe it was my own fears that were feeding into things. I mean, I had just prayed off not becoming an orphan myself, and there I am holding one. Um, but I suddenly felt the pain of a mother and a child divided. I was um, sad. <laughs> I was very, very sad. Um, then I felt her disappointment. And then I felt her hope. She really hoped that her child would be able to hear the story and not let it ruin the rest of her life. Our relationship was um, quite practical, it seems. But most of the time, yeah, I held her really close um, next to my chest. I was quite protective of her. Just rocked her. Uh, kept her safe. It was really important for me um, that she felt safe because she kind of wasn't. The baby was really quite a good baby. Um, 
I only remember her waking up once and crying, and then she slept the rest of the time. So, you know, I've often wondered if her mother's presence, if the, if the child felt her mother's presence. And I think that was the whole point of her being there. She was sticking around until she was sure that, that the baby was in the right hands. Well, I remember when mom got home and pulled into the driveway, I was at the, you know, I was at the door waiting to tell her what had happened. Um, and uh, it was probably about an hour or 45 minutes after she arrived home that they, the relatives came and picked her up. Um, they were very kind to me and, and, like I say, very appreciative. There wasn't a big transaction. We, we gave them the baby, and it seemed like they were off. Um, as soon as the relatives had departed and the baby was, was gone, so was she. So I'm sure that she went with the child. And by then we had learned what had happened. Uh, this young woman had been having an affair with Donnie, and uh, she had just asked her husband uh, for a divorce so that she and Donnie could carry, you know, forth their, for their lives together. And uh, her husband was a Brigham City policeman. And after his shift, he had gotten drunk and then drove down to our little town to settle the score. He uh, shot Donnie, and then he shot uh, the mother. And she was holding the baby. Uh, they were standing in the kitchen, and she was holding the baby at the time, and the baby fell with her to the floor, which, of course, explained the blood on the pajamas. And then the shooter turned the gun on himself. So the thuds that echoed over our peaceful orchards had been bullets. This sort of thing just didn't happen in our part of town. And it had given me some celebrity to have, have it happen right next door. So the next day, when I returned to school, I was the center of attention because everybody wanted to hear this story. You know, it had made the uh, Box Elder Journal by then. So, And I told them about the policeman. I told them about the gunshots and the baby. But I left out the ghost. Why didn't you want to tell them? At 12, you crave ordinary. <laughs> I didn't want to be seen as unusual or different. And the other part of that is, this was uh, a private, a very powerful experience that I was hesitant to share. It was mine. Thank you to Janet Larkin, for sharing your story at the snap. Now, if you want to hear more of Janet's experiences, she's written them down in a book called Surrounded by Ghosts. Find out more at our website, snapjudgment.org. The original score was created by Renzo Gorio. The story was produced by Anna Sussman. In just a moment, what does the other side want? Find out when Campfire Tales continues. Stay tuned. 